Let's go ahead and turn our attention to the book of Revelation. Turn in your Bibles, I hope you have those with you this morning, to Revelation chapter 2. I want to go ahead and invite up Irene. Irene is going to be reading for us. And if you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's Word. We're going to be reading a couple of different sections as we look at the various churches uh, in Revelation 2 this morning. Revelation 2, 18 through 29, and then 3, 1 through 6, and then chapter 3, 14 through 22. So Irene, I'll pass it off to you. Good morning, church. Revelation 2, 18 through 29, to the church in Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, the, word, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her unto the sickbed, and those commit adultery with her, I will throw them to great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. And to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay lay on you any other burden, and hold fast what you have until I come the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I give, him, give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I my, myself have received authority from the Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 3, 1, 6. To the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis writes, The words of him has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. You, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I, conf- I will confess his name before my father and before his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Revelation 3, 14 through 22, to the church in Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful, true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would you either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm 
and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Church, this is the word of God. You may be seated. Amen. Father, uh, we read that, and there is, there is so much there. Uh, and so there is a tall task before us this morning uh, to look at these things and to glean out some specific things that you might have for us. And Lord, I just pray. Lord, in my weakness, in my inabilities, in my insufficiencies, Lord, that you would speak through me, um, because like I said, I know there's way more uh, that can be talked about uh, than I can talk about in the next 30 minutes or so. And so, Lord, I just pray uh, that you would give us your favor this morning. I pray that you would have for each person here, that one, those that are listening online, that you would have something specific for them, that your spirit would um, bring to mind. Uh, and, and Lord, our prayer always, when we come to your word, is the same prayer that was repeated three times, Lord, that that we would have eyes to see and that we would have ears to hear what you're saying to your churches. So Lord, just pray uh, your spirit to be present with us. Like we need him. Uh, we need him to guide us, to lead us uh, as we look at, this, at this, this book and this revelation that you've given to us. And so Lord, be with us, go before us, speak through me, speak in spite of me. We pray and ask all these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> so if you're new to Central here, it's your first week, or maybe you haven't been with us the past couple weeks, you've missed that we're in the book of Revelation, then we are currently right now looking at the seven churches. Now, we've already talked about four of those churches uh, that, that God wants to reveal something very specific to, uh, and we're looking at the last three churches. And it's an important reminder for us that as we look at these churches, that these are not just singular churches that were existed in history way back then, and this was only for them. It was for them, but it's also for us. It's also to us as the church, because it, the intent and the idea here is that we would not fall prey to the similar temptations that we would then become useless for the battle that's around us, or succumb to the battle that is around us, the spiritual battle that is around us. And so that's what we're looking at this morning, and we're going to jump right into the church of Thyatira, a living compromise. Jesus, we see right at the beginning here, is seen as the lamb with, flame, with eyes of flames of fire. You remember that from Revelation chapter 1, and we talked about what that means. What that means is that he sees all of it. He sees everything. He knows us. He pierces us. We see that in verse 23 where it talks about how he's searching our hearts and minds. Like this is the representation of Jesus. And that's important because when we jump into the book of, or the letter to Thyatira, what do we see? We see good things. We don't see all bad things. We see good things. I mean, things start off really well. They've got works, all kinds of works. They've got works of love. They've got works of faith, works of service. They seem to be patiently enduring tribulations. 
they, they seem to have life. It even seems that they have some element of growth within their church. Now, maybe that's spiritual growth. Maybe it's numerical growth. We don't know. But one of the things that helps us keep in mind here is that when we look at a church and we look at ourselves, just because a church has good programs or a church has great worship that makes us feel something special and unique or they've got um, growing children's ministries or whatever that is, does not mean the church is healthy. It doesn't. And that's hard for us sometimes because we want to look at those metrics, those measurable things, and be like, oh, that surely is a church that's growing because of this, that, or the other. But what we see here is you can't necessarily guarantee that. And so what we need to do is always trust in the Lord who sees all. When we look at the church, we look at ourselves, even when we look at central, because what we see right off the bat here is that while things look good to Thyatira, and it may have looked good to every other church in that region, he sees something different. And he sees something unhealthy. And what he sees that's so unhealthy is tolerance. That's where this starts. They are tolerating something in their church. Tolerance was prevalent. Now, I want to make something really, really clear at the front end of this. It is always important for us to understand temptation and compromise almost always start with tolerance. Temptation and compromise almost always start with tolerance. Not everyone in Thyatira, we know this from the scripture, was participating in what was being taught or in what those people were doing, but they were tolerating it. Tolerating can start as something pretty, pretty small. Tolerating can start like something that sounds even really, really good. It can even start in a way that sounds really spiritual. We can use words like love and grace. Isn't this where it starts in our culture? Like you should tolerate this kind of sin because that's what love would do. You should tolerate this type of individual or this type of teaching because, man, like, that's what love would want to do. I mean, we don't, we don't want to be judgmental, right? Like, like that, that, even though that song isn't really theologically accurate, like I'm sure their hearts are right, and we just want to be grace, filled of grace, full of grace. And so we begin to tolerate, and we want all kinds of acceptance. We want to talk about things like grace and mercy and all those things are good and they're biblical and they're right. But if they lead us to tolerate things that are not of him, we need to be very careful. This tolerating can be sin. It can be sin in the church. It can be sin in your own life. This tolerating can be false teaching. False teaching that has the name of Jesus but yet isn't actually communicating the true and real Jesus. See, the church in Thyatira was tolerating something very specific, something very contrary to God. It may not have seemed like a big deal, but we see that to him it is a really big deal by how he talks about it. There's a certain Jezebel-ness that they were, to- that they were tolerating. Now, I know that's not a real word, but... I read that in a commentary, and I thought it was such a good word to kind of talk about what it is that is going on in this, because we don't know whether, whether Jesus is talking about a specific individual or whether he's talking about kind of a, a spirit that was within the church 
or an idea that was in the church. And so what we see, though, regardless of whether it was an individual or a spirit, is a spirit of Jezebel, a Jezebel-ness. Now, you may not be familiar with who this woman is or was. She was the wife of King Ahab in the Old Testament. She was not a Jew. She was not part of the people of God. And in essence and in short, she seduced the people of God. She turned their eyes away from, wanted to turn their eyes away from the one true living God. She was unruly and she desired to bring in compromise. That's who Jezebel was. And so here's what we see. She became, throughout Scripture, synonymous with any spirit that took on those types of characteristics. The same spirit is alluded to even in Revelation chapter 17 when we see the harlot, which we'll get to later. It's a spirit that seeks to justify, compromise, not only allow it, but encourage worldly behavior. It's the spirit that would seek to justify false teaching coming into the church and say, oh, that's okay, that's not that big of a deal. So what if we're just a little bit off? The same temptation is with us right here and right now. In this day, in this age, it's in this church because it's always a temptation because this is how the enemy attacks his people, the people of God. It can sound like a follow your heart kind of message. We hear that all the time, don't we? God loves you just the way you are. God would never make you uh, in that way if he didn't want you to act in that way. Like, he loves you just the way you are. Man, this is going to be a grace place. We're going to focus on forgiveness, and we're going to talk about mercy and grace and love, but not just any kind of love, the love that affirms you right where you are. It just wants to welcome you in. It's the spirit of, man, like, follow your heart. Do what feels right. Listen to what feels right. Listen, if that teaching from that pulpit makes you feel good inside, well, surely it's true, right? Right? Like if that worship song like gives you an emotional sense and a, a feeling of like, oh, this is awesome, well, surely it's right, right? Because everything that feels right to us is right. Well, here's the problem. We aren't trustworthy. Our feelings aren't trustworthy. Our experiences aren't trustworthy. Could they be right sometimes? Absolutely. But here's what we know to be true from Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 17 tells us this. The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Do you recognize that about your heart? Like, I do. It's deceitful. It's desperately sick. And I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Sounds like eyes of flaming fire, right? Sounds like verse 23 of what he's talking about there in Thyatira. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Interestingly, how he refers to himself here. You know, I, I said I was going to talk about Plato. I'm sure you all have played with Plato at some point in your life, that you've engaged your life. Like, Plato is intended to be something that's um, molded, it's used, it's played with, it's toyed with. Some of you all parents um, hate Plato. Um, I'm one of them. I hate mixing Play-Doh. It stresses me out. Corbin and I were talking about it earlier. I hate it when it gets in carpet. I hate Play-Doh. But nonetheless, uh, Play-Doh is intended for something. It's intended to be used for something, to be molded and shaped. But what happens for us and what the temptation is that's happening is the enemy likes to little by little take these little marbles. And I know I stole these from my daughter's room. She's probably going to be stressed about it, but I'll give them back. I promise, Jade, wherever you are. Like, but these marbles, they represent these little, these little bits of tolerance, right? 
I, 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 can, I can tolerate that teaching, even though it doesn't quite feel right. It, it makes me feel good, even though I don't know what it is. It makes me feel good, and I can tolerate that song just because it makes me feel good, and, and I can tolerate um, sin, and I can tolerate brokenness, and I can tolerate well, that, that, that one song in that, that I'm listening to that doesn't speak of godliness. I, I can tolerate that, and I can tolerate um, watching that movie, and I can tolerate not going to church, and I can tolerate all of these different things, and before long, and you can guess, and you can't feel it, but with all those marbles in this, it becomes pretty useless, it becomes pretty useless for what it's intended to be. It seems like one or two of them is okay. Like you can just kind of get around that. But the more we add, the more we tolerate into our lives, the more useless we become. And then what happens to us is that not only do we tolerate it, but now it leads to flat out compromise, doesn't it? Because how long is it before you go, you know what? I'm watching that TV show and those jokes, even though they're bad and they're coarse and they're filthy, I laugh at them. How long is it going to be before you repeat them? I, I know I listen to all that language in those TV shows, and I see all that, all that sex that's in those TV shows, and, 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 I, and I know I, I see that. How long is it going to be before you're actually speaking like that? Because that's what tolerating something does. Over time, we become desensitized to it. Over time, it becomes something that's just part of our lives, and we compromise over and over and over and over again. And that's what's happening to the church in Thyatira. And it, look, like it looks pretty good on the outside. It's hard to see those marvels, but they're in there. And this Plato's useless. It, I can't use it to build things because there's 25 marbles that are sitting in there. That's what's happening to the church, and this is the temptation, and this is the call. Like, listen, we need to be a people that doesn't compromise in anything. We're to be pure. But it's easy, isn't it? It's not that big of a deal. It's not that important. And that that teaching may not, maybe just be a little bit off, but you know what? It feels really nice, and so before long, though, you're not even preaching the gospel. I don't need to go to church this week. I don't need to pray. I don't need to worry about reading the Word of God. I'm just going to dabble in these things. And little by little, the more we tolerate, the more we compromise, and the more we're going to become useful, useless. This isn't just individuals. This isn't just your individual life, but it's your family. The more your family compromises, the more it will become useless for the kingdom of God. And it's the church. The more the church compromises, the more it will become useless for the kingdom of God. Now, this type of faith, this type of living leads to a pretty harsh promise in Revelation chapter 2, doesn't it? Look what Jesus says. Behold, I will throw her, Jezebel, onto the sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Toleration of false teaching, toleration of ungodliness, following our hearts, is going to only lead us to a sickbed. Like, just in, in simple, if my kids just followed their hearts and their appetites and what felt good to their stomachs and their tongues, they would eat an entire thing of cupcakes and they'd end up in the sickbed. This is what happens to us. The more you tolerate, the more you compromise, and the more you end up sick, enslaved to sin, 
That's why we see things like high-profile falls from grace in the church, dissatisfaction within church, enslavement to all kinds of addictions and challenges. That's why we see hardness of heart in the church. We've said this throughout our sermon series, but just because you have Christian components in your life, it is not the same as a pure, undivided pursuit and obedience to Jesus. So, what do we do? What do we do? How do we fix this? We look at this and we're like, okay, I want to repent of this. I want to start pulling these things out of my life and putting them back in the jar and stop tolerating. Like, what do we do? Well, here's what we do. We engage in a true pursuit of Jesus. Look at this text again. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 28, when he's talking about what he's going to give to the church that conquers, those who conquer this, he says, I will give him the morning star. We know who this is because he's talked about it earlier in Revelation. He's the one that has the shining face. In Revelation chapter 22, 16, he uses this same language, the bright morning star. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Those who don't tolerate, those who don't compromise, ultimately get Jesus. A strong pursuit of something else helps eliminate toleration of anything that gets in the way. Like, think about the Olympic athlete, all right? If an Olympic athlete, they want to to win whatever the next summer games are, I don't know what's coming next, but they want to win that game. They want to win their event. They can't tolerate sleeping in late and missing practice because their pursuit of the Olympic games says, no, no, I can't tolerate anything. I can't tolerate eating the junk food because it's going to mess with my body, even just a little bit. Because if they tolerate it, they won't be able to perform at the same level. If you want your marriage to be good, you can't tolerate husbands looking at another woman, even a little bit. Women, you can't tolerate looking at another man, even a little bit. Like you want to put that to death. You want to kill that. This is what it means, but we can only do that by a greater pursuit of Jesus. I mean, listen, if you're truly pursuing the real Jesus, you shouldn't want to tolerate any form of Jesus that is not fully him. Like if there's something that talks all the way about his humanity and just focuses on that and ignores the sonship of God and the fact that he is God, like you shouldn't want to tolerate that. You want to see the complete Jesus. You see a Jesus and someone proclaims a Jesus that doesn't care about your sin, you shouldn't want that Jesus because that's not the real Jesus. Like you want to pursue the real Jesus, the one that he has given to us, the one he's revealed to us, the one he is shown to be in history and in his word. You can't tolerate feeding your flesh at the expense of the spirit because you're pursuing Jesus. So here's the question, the first question for us today, the first question for you today, what are you tolerating? What are you tolerating in your life? And it's just really small. What are you tolerating? Songs that hold bad theology? Teachers who don't teach truth on your favorite podcasts? Books that are proposing wrong thoughts and wrong ideas about who God is? Certain shows, certain things in your the, the things you ingest in your life, like what are you tolerating? Now, I want to say this. All of us have things in our lives that we've compromised. The point, and I've said this before, is that you're not at peace with it because you're not going to be perfect. So don't hear me say that that's the goal. The goal is to not be at peace with it and to not tolerate it. Next, we move on to Sardis, the complacent dead. We now have 
the one in Jesus who is represented as the one who holds the seven spirits. He holds the seven stars. And he says, I'm gonna come, and I'm going to come back to that as we go on. But he speaks to the church in Sardis. Not a lot to commend them for, which is a little scary if you're Sardis. Not a lot to say, hey, this is what you're doing. He jumps right in to say, this is what I have against you. And he says, you look alive, but you are dead. These people had become spiritually complacent. They'd fallen asleep. Listen, you, we need to hear this. Like, they had heard the gospel. They had accepted the gospel. This is a church. Something happened, and complacency had set in in their lives. Interestingly enough, with these churches, oftentimes geographically and historically, reveals something specific about what's being communicated. Sardis was a city that was considered to be impenetrable. But... Two times in its history, it had fallen. You know why it had fallen? Because the watchmen had become complacent. That's what he's saying. Like, listen, like, don't become complacent. Complacency leads to being conquered, not to conquering. You hear that? Complacency leads to being conquered, not to the one conquering. This is the point we see in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes this in verses 2 through 13. Therefore, my beloved church, hear this. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Don't stop at salvation. Keep working. Wake up. Wake up. Continue to work in the faith, doing nothing with your faith, will only lead to decay. Doing nothing with your faith will only lead to decay. You see this yellow Play-Doh. This yellow Play-Doh looks good. It looks fine on the outside, but this is the destiny of all Play-Doh. If you've ever had Play-Doh, it dries out and it becomes useless. Right? Like your kids go to play with the Play-Doh and it's as hard as a rock. It's not useful for anything because it's just been left there. It looks fine when you're looking at it from a distance, but it's not, it's not helpful. It's not useful. It's just, it's just complacent. This is what happens to us in our faith if we just take salvation and then we just let things go. We just let things go. In our complacency, we will decay. When you don't apply effort to your spiritual walk, husbands, dads, mothers, Wives, singles, students, when you don't apply effort to your spiritual walk, your spiritual walk will decay. And your heart will become harder, and you'll become more and more useless. So again, I don't want to leave us with just that. What do we do? What do we do if we find ourselves like hardened? Like, what do I do if I find that, man, like, I, I've been complacent in my spiritual life. What do I do? The first thing you do is you, you fan into flame that which has already been given to you. Fan into flame that which has already been given to you. God's given you gifts in his spirit. Use them. God's given you the relationship with him. So, so lean into it. Seek to deepen it. God's given you relationships with brothers and sisters around you. Lean into those relationships. Be in fellowship with those people. Fan into flame that which God has already given to you. Serve in the church. Serve others. Proclaim the gospel. Be in church. Pray. Fast. Read the word of God. Like fan into flame those things. 
Don't just leave it be. When you hear the word of God say, pray ceaselessly, or never stop to pray, don't just walk away. Try to fan that into flame. Get around somebody and be like, okay, I don't know how to pray ceaselessly. I don't know what that looks like. Will you help me? When someone says, when you read a text of scripture that says, take captive every thought, like take that and fan that little gift into flame and get around people and be like, I don't really know how to take that captive every thought. I can barely take captive one thought. And you just start to fan it into flame. This is what we do. Now, here's the next question. Not only do you need to fan into flame what he's given to you, you know what else you need to fan into flame? You need to understand what it is you already are fanning into flame. Like, I've gone through now, I'm on my third teenager. Some of y'all are already laughing. I haven't said anything. Why is it that teenagers always get the butt of our jokes? Like, no, I, seriously, I actually am about to say that. But nonetheless, like, I'm already my third teenager. And if you've had teenagers, you know that trying to get most 16 year olds out of bed is a nightmare. Right? Like, it's okay. Like, one, like, listen, in you guys' defense, if you're a teenager and you're 16, like, you scientifically need more rest than the rest of us. Like, you're growing. I get it. But here's the funny thing about that. Oftentimes, the reason why teenagers are hard to get up isn't just because they're sleepy and tired. It's because they were fanning some other things into flame on the back end, on the front end of that, that makes it really hard to get up. In other words, if I also stayed up till 3 o'clock in the morning looking at YouTube videos the six o'clock alarm is going to seem a little stressful, right? If I, did, if I procrastinated my assignment and had to stay up till four to, to, to get that assignment done, it's going to be hard to get up at six in the morning. If I drink a five-hour energy at, at 12, I'm not sleeping for like two days, right? You know this. Like if you look at your phone, the blue light makes it hard for you to sleep. So you know what I'm saying? Those are seeds that you're putting into your life that's going to make it really hard to stay up or to get up in the morning. You're going to be tired. The question is, when you look at your life, if you find yourself complacent in your life, what are you fanning into flame right now? Like, like you can't, say, for example, spend all night looking at YouTube videos on a Saturday night until one o'clock in the morning and then feel that you're spiritually ready to come to church. How is that possible? See what happens? You can't, you can't be giving to your flesh all day long and then suddenly want to be a tool used to proclaim the gospel to the person at the gym because you haven't fanned the right thing into flame. And so the important thing for us to remind ourselves in this space is, is that question of what are you fanning into flame now that's causing your spiritual complacency? So you can look at it from both the positive side and the negative side. Lastly, in this section, we need to be reminded that we need to walk by the Spirit. Do that, doing that which pleases you is not going to please Him. We are called to do what pleases Him. And remember at the very beginning, I said I would come back to this. The one who is speaking, the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars in his hands. If you were with us when we talked about that and the picture of Jesus earlier, he's basically standing there ready to minister to you. He's like, listen, like you, you can't do this on your own, but I'm here ready to help you. The one who sees all of this stuff also has the powerful spirit of God to help us, guide us, empower us, and strengthen us so we won't be complacent. Isn't that awesome? Like he doesn't just leave us alone and say, oh, well, you figure out how to fix this. No, no, he gives us the water to start working back into it. It's the spirit of God. 
And I have to say this to you. You may be sitting here this morning, and you may have heard the Spirit of God in my maintenance. They're going to hate me because I'm like leaving stuff all over the place. But here's the thing. like, The more you don't listen to the Spirit, the harder your heart will become. So if you're sitting out here this morning, and you're like, man, I really feel like I've gotten complacent. I really should do something about that. And then you don't listen to that, you're going to become harder. And you're going to be worse off when you came in than when you left. Don't forget that. We will continually harden our hearts if we continually refuse to listen to the Spirit. If he has shown you something that you're tolerating in your life and you're like, yeah, I know it's there, but man, there's all these reasons or I'll get to it later. No, no, you just hardened your heart more. And it's gonna be harder to hear the Spirit of God that he's offered to help us. And so we as people of God need to be walking in the Spirit, always faithful to listen, even if it sounds crazy. Hey, I want you to, I want you to, Invite that person to church, or I want you to tell that person that Jesus loves them. Mm, don't want to do that. I, I, I can't do that. You know what? He's going to probably stop asking you. But if you say yes, you might see God work in your life and move in some unite, some unbelievable ways. And so listen to the Spirit. Listen to what He's calling you to. Don't ignore Him. Don't harden your hearts to Him. That's how we get out of this complacency if we're there. The third part. As Laodicea, self-dependent uselessness. The Laodiceans had become a place of self-sufficiency. They thought they were rich. We don't really know why. We don't know if they thought they were spiritually rich. We don't know if we thought that they thought they were um, wealthy, that they were physically rich. The scripture doesn't exactly tell us what that is. Maybe it was a little bit of both. The point is they were not dependent upon God. They may have went to church all Sunday, all buttoned up. They might have been looking for a feel-good service, an emotional pick-me-up, but at the end of the day, they were not sufficient, or they were self-sufficient. They didn't realize that they were poor. They didn't realize that they were pitiful. They didn't realize that they were wretched. They didn't realize that they needed him. And, and we got to understand that self-sufficiency, it breeds some very dangerous things in us as people. Self-sufficiency breeds in us pride. Do we live as those who remember that anything you have, spiritually or physically, is from him. If you have faith, he gave it. If you have hope, he gave it. If you have joy, he gave it. If you have peace, he gave it. That's him. If you have growth in your life, he gave that. If he's giving you spiritual gifts, he gave that. That's not you. I can't sit up here and say, I'm so glad that I'm such a great speaker. No, no, he gave that to me. That's not mine. He can take that away from me tomorrow. Like, like you look at your life, like, and you say, like, I, I've built this kingdom for myself, and I've made this money, and I've got this job, and I've gone through school, and, man, I've got A's in school right now, and I'm looking forward to going to, to school. I got a scholarship for this sport or that sport. Like, you didn't give yourself those things. He gave you the ability for those things. You're dependent upon him for that wisdom, him for that strength, him for that body, him for that health, him for that breath. Brothers and sisters, we don't deserve to be here. And yet his gracious, kind love and mercy has allowed us to be present. We are not self-sufficient. We should not be prideful looking at our lives and say, I have made this. 
Self-sufficiency also can breed a delusion of health. Man, when you're looking around, you say, look at all that I've done. Look how good things are. And then, I, I surely must be healthy. I mean, I surely must be spiritually blessed because, look, I, I'm, I'm physically healthy, and so God must be blessing me. Well, listen, there's a whole lot more wicked people than I am that have a lot better health than I do. The scriptures are full of the people of Israel looking at the wicked being like, why do they prosper so much while we don't? The scripture's clear of times where the people of God were being called back to follow the Lord, and they said, well, we don't want to come back because now that we're coming back, things are getting hard. Things were so much better when we were under our idols. So we're going to go back to our idols. We're going to go back to Egypt. We want what Egypt had for us. Do not be deceived that just because everything in your life looks good, that that means that God's blessing you. Sometimes he is. Uh, don't get me wrong. <laughs> David was pretty wealthy. All right? Solomon was pretty wealthy. Now, that led to some temptations for both of them. But nonetheless, what I'm saying is don't look at your self-sufficiency and what you've seen your, build, your world look like and assume that that means he's pleased with you. We want to hear him tell us he's pleased with us. We don't want to just assume it. We don't want to have the delusion of health. It also leads, our self-sufficiency leads to uselessness. It can blind us to the needs of others, but it also keeps us from seeking Jesus' presence in our lives, which in turn leads us to bearing fruit in our lives. Remember, you can't bear fruit apart from Jesus. You won't go to Jesus if you don't think you need Jesus. And so if you think you're good and you think you're dependent to live life, you're not going to, not only are you not going to be looking for Jesus, but you're not going to be bearing fruit for Jesus. Now, it's often preached that in this text in Laodicea that the cold person is an unbeliever, right? Like the hot person, we want you to be zealous for, for the Lord and we want you to be hot on fire for Jesus. But the cold person, like that's an unbeliever. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, I'd rather you be an unbeliever. I don't, that's not actually what this text is saying, and here's why we know. Because again, the geography of the place tells us why. Laodicea was a part of three sister cities. Heropolis, I'm pretty sure I'm butchering that, Colossae and Laodicea. Heropolis was a city that had all kinds of hot springs in it, and so people would flock to that city to get healing. And so sometimes they would be shipping that water to Laodicea so that they could engage that. Colossae was next to a river, and so they could get cold and refreshing water from the river. Laodicea didn't have any of those. Laodicea had to get hot water from Heropolis and cold water from Colossae, and they, had, they understood that lukewarm water was useless. Jesus is saying, I want you to either be refreshing, spiritually refreshing, or I want you to be spiritually healing. I don't want you to be useless. Lukewarm is useless. And he's saying, I don't really care what you do. I don't really care how you engage. I don't really care how you try to bear fruit. Just step into faith. Step into obedience. Jesus sees them. Man, they're distasteful to him. And he threatens to spit them out because they're useless. They're too prideful. But in that text, there's grace, isn't there? What does he stand? He stands at the door. He's knocking. They don't think they need him for much of anything, maybe other than salvation. 
But nonetheless, he's there knocking. I'm here. You want to be with me? We live in a place like none other before in history. We can so easily delude ourselves into thinking that we are mostly self-sufficient. But the truth is, we need Jesus for everything. We need him for wisdom. We need him for peace. We need him for righteousness. We need him to sustain us. We need him to strengthen us. We need him to show us how to live life. We need to show him how to flourish in life. I need, to, I need him to show me how to love my wife. My wife needs him to show, him, show her how to love me. I need him to, show, to know how to be a good father. Like I need him for everything. Everything. We need him to be molding us and working us in every single area of our life. Back to my Plato. Is it interesting, Plato remains useless unless someone's hands from the outside are using it? Ever thought about that? Like Plato in itself is nothing but a lump. But when someone's hands work it, it can be turned into all kinds of really cool things. I cannot do that right here in front of you at all. I made a bowl, like a really bad one, right? But, but, but Jesus wants to work us. He wants to constantly be molding us and using us and guiding us and directing us. And this is part of what's happening in our lives. Like he's saying, like, listen, like, like if you get near me and you just pursue me and in my presence, then I'm going to take you. I'm going to use you. I'm going to work you. I'm going to make you into something really great. And that doesn't mean you're going to be um, let me just be clear. It doesn't mean you're going to be the president of the United States. It may mean you serve in the kids' ministry. Because to him, that's great. It may mean you lay your life down for the homeless or for the foster kid or for a, you adopt a child or you just care for somebody. You buy them groceries. It may mean that, but he's working you into something great. It's not about doing more. It's about getting more of him. You hear me? It's not about, okay, well, here's how I can be useful. I just do more. No, no, no. Here's how you can be useful. Get closer to him and offer yourself up to let him work you and use you and mold you. Dr. Jeff Myers, uh, he was looking into um, a particular saint, uh, St. Catherine of Siena, who was a saint during the time of the Black Death. And he was curious about her because um, he would see that, that she was one, even though she had the means, she didn't leave all the people who were dying of the Black Death. She ran into where the people were at, and she ministered them, and they, she served them. And so he just investigated, and he wanted to read her journals and her diaries and understand what drove this woman. Well, this is the statement that he ultimately made as he looked into her life. If you want to be with Jesus, sit with the suffering. That's where he is. Now, now, here's the point. She wanted to be with Jesus. He's the one that molded her into the saint who cared for the sick and the dying. She was just like, I just want to be with him. And so I'm just going to go sit with the suffering because that's where he's at. And we know that's where he's at because that's who he came to be with. He came for the sick and the dying and the hurting and the lost. Man, he came for the Pharisees and the rich too. But physically, we see that he spends a lot of his time with those who need him the most. And so here's the thing. Like, sometimes we go, I don't know how to find Jesus. Well, yes, the word, yes, in prayer, yes, in church, yes, in fellowship, but yes, also with the suffering. Are you willing to step into that so that he can use us and mold us 
and make us into something. Here's what I want to encourage us to do. I want to close with this challenge today. Have you fallen into any of these temptations? Are you tolerating things in your life? Are you tolerating teaching that's not biblical, teaching that's not in line with God's word? Are you tolerating teaching that comes through song? Are you tolerating sin in your life? Even if it's small, like are you tolerating it? Second, are you complacent? Are you complacent in your spiritual life? Are you in the process of decay right now? Or are you, are you working that which God has given to you? If he's given you the spirit and the gift of encouragement, are you using that to encourage the people around you? If he's given you the gift of hospitality, are you using that to bring people into your home or to, to serve as a greeter within the church? If he's giving you a gift of teaching, are you teaching your sons and your daughters and your youth and other men and women that are around you? Are you teaching within the church? Are you using that which he's given to you? Are you complacent? Are you self-sufficient? Have you leaned into self-sufficiency and you're like, I, I don't need Jesus. I don't, I don't need Jesus. And so he's not working you and he's not moving and he's not molding and he's not creating you into something. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. Come on, I, I want to eat with you. I want you to bow your heads. Close your eyes. I just want to lead you to a time of silence. Because we're going to enter into a time of communion here in just a moment. And what I love about that, that text in Laodicea is that Jesus is threatening to vomit out those who are useless, those who um, are self-sufficient, but he's saying, listen, if you repent of it, I want to eat with you. And this is the whole point of the gospel. The whole point of the gospel is he wants to reconcile us. He wants to bring us into his family. He wants to adopt us as sons and daughters. He wants to make us into new creations. And communion is a reminder each week that that's what he's done for many of us. And man, we rest not in our own work, not our own effort, but we rest in his blood and we rest in his, his body and the brokenness of that, and we rest in the, the trust we have in him to make us into a new creation. But before we enter that time of communion, I want to give you time to pause. And if you're somebody who's walking right now, you've got tolerating sin or tolerating false teaching, or you're, you're struggling in self-sufficiency or complacency, lay that before the Lord. Just confess it. And you, all you got to do is just say, God, this is, uh, I've been complacent. I haven't been in your word. I've been, I've been complacent with coming to church. I've been complacent with using my gifts. I've been complacent. And you just confess that to him. And say, Lord, what do I do next? And then listen to the Spirit. Listen to the Spirit. Just take a moment.
Father, in this silence, just speak to our hearts. Help our hearts to not be hard. I pray that you'd help us to listen with intent. Intent to keep, intent to repent. Intent to pick up the sword and fight a little harder against that sin that we struggle with. Intent to find accountability. Intent to always take every teaching, everything we listen to and line it up against the word, no matter how good it makes us feel. No matter how many emotions it brings about. Help us to listen with intent to to take our complacency and turn it to zeal. Zeal for your word. Zeal for obedience. Zeal for your presence. Zeal for service. Zeal for generosity. I pray that you'd help us to listen with intent to see our self-sufficiency and to humble ourselves and seek your presence. Seek sitting with you and just being with you because that's our goal so that you can mold us and shape us and use us for whatever you want. Because all we want, we just want to be with you. So help us to listen with that intent. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people church, individuals, families who will confess and repent. I'm so thankful that no matter how lukewarm we've been, no matter how complacent we've been, no matter how much we've tolerated in our lives, you stand at the door and knock. I want to eat with you. Lord, I want to pray that you would help those that are struggling, those that are doubtful, those that are discouraged, those that are faint-hearted. Lord, I pray that you would help them to abide in your love and your grace and your mercy this morning. Father, the intent of this message is not to lead us to despair, but it's to lead us to hope that no matter what we've brought into this moment, that we can find grace and mercy and forgiveness and a newness of life walking out of this place. And that doesn't come from more effort on our part. Effort's good, but it comes from you working in us and us abiding in you, resting in you. Help us to be pure, undivided.